Welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Those that are on YouTube just got a nice little uh, look at Liz drinking coffee out of the cup that I just used for my coffee, actually. Yes. So you just ruined my really nice cup of coffee with a really shitty cup of coffee. Anyway, welcome back, everyone. Joined by myself, obviously, Liz, and our lovely coach, Mr. Tom. How are you, mate? I started looking somewhere else when you said lovely. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but no, good to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Are you trying to say that you're not a lovely man? I wouldn't well, I think lovely is a stretch. Lovely. Can we settle for adequate? <laughs> Would you classify yourself as a man? Would yeah, you? generally. Well, just when Liz and I first started dating for those at home, uh, I called her a woman, I think. And she was like, woman? I was 23 at the I'm time. Not, I'm not a woman. Mm. And I was like, no, you weren't. I'm 25. Yes, yeah, I And I was like, well, what are you, girl? Like, I don't know if I really want to call you a girl. Like, mm. you seem a little bit more mature than a girl. And she was like, oh, like, you don't want to be a lady. That's old. Yeah. Is and she then, a featherless biped? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Therefore, man, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, so um, she was uncomfortable with being called a woman for a while. But Tom's embracing the man, the adequate man. Yeah, adequate. I mean, a boy, a boy can't rock a stash. I feel like uh, there's a lot of shit talk coming from your, your mouth this morning, so I'm going to cut you off. Okay. And we're going to get to Tom, which is who's way more interesting than your shit talk. He is lovely and interesting. <laughs> He's lovely and interesting. And Tom has been up to a lot, haven't you, Tom? It's been a very interesting year or so, actually. It's been good fun. <laughs> Why don't you give us a rundown, starting with the moving of the states and then the losing of the weight and then the changing of the sports? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, gee. Change of sport. Um, yeah, so basically I turned 23 last year, um, which means for those in the for those in like powerlifting, I think bodybuilding's the same circles. That's your last year of juniors. Um, so End of 2019, I decided to move up a weight class and sort of tick all my boxes and smash the one percenters for my last junior nationals as a powerlifter. Um, didn't end up competing actually because I tore my hamstring twice. Um, <laughs> pardon? Once is never enough. Yeah. Oh, look, not a great time. Um, but no, so I, I let myself gain a bit of weight. I'd always traditionally sort of sat at 85, 86 kilos. Um, and got as high as 96.7. Um, so that took about like 12 months of just constantly overfeeding myself. Um, I got a lot stronger. Like I benched like 140, not very good at benching, um, squatted 250 and didn't actually end up testing my deadlift courtesy of the hamstring. Um, but yeah, got a lot stronger. But one of the things I found was because I had in my head this idea of becoming it like ending being a junior was like the proverbial finish line i invested probably a little too much emotional energy into that process in like the short term um and found myself not only getting a little bit burnt out but i found myself making sacrifices with my training which weren't ways that i wanted to be forever like i got a lot stronger like i feel like i put 25 odd kilos 30 kilos on my squat in like nine months and I felt really like strong, but what I found is I was strong only in that particular domain and the rest of my life kind of sucked. Uh, there was this one moment 
when I was at my heaviest, where I was walking from the station to uni, it's like a 20 minute walk, two Ks, no hills. And I looked at my watch and my heart rate was 140. <laughs> oh shit, Tom. And I just sort of, I just like, in that moment went, hang on. <laughs> That's bad. That is not how I want to live my life. Um, so yeah, so did that. And then like, I was, I was playing mess around footy, like not at a particularly serious level and did my hamstring, did it again six weeks later when I tried to go back to playing footy. And it sort of made me wonder, like I'm quite young. I know powerlifting is a thing which will be there for me for another 15, 20 years and some. What can I do to sort of improve the human being I am a little bit more instead of necessarily pushing being a powerlifter? Um, and when I was a kid, like a proper kid, when I was like eight or nine, I did like heaps of running and I really enjoyed running, um, long distances. Um, so basically I'd always in the back of my head thought, Oh, like I really want to do a marathon. I want to do some long distance running. Um, and one of my best mates twisted my arm into me signing up for a half marathon last November. Um, so I trained for six weeks for that. Uh, lost a little bit of weight, had a great time. Hang on, how much weight is a little bit of weight? No, on? this is for the six weeks. Oh, no, right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So, so like for that one, I probably lost like four or five kilos. So I went down from like 96.7 to like 91, 92. Yeah, so five or six kilos. Um, had a really good time and then sort of decided, okay, if I know that strength training is going to be something I do forever effectively, I can afford to spend six, 12 months pursuing some other goals and doing so in a way which improves like the health of the organism, which is me. So like I'll sleep better, I'll feel better, I'll have better body comp. Those niggles you get from sort of really focused powerlifting training, like pec tendonitis, like hip impingement issues, allow them to subside and get on top of them and be proactive in my rehab. Um, and then because I'm chasing performance in a modality which rewards being light and moving well, um, I can at least get some kind of self-efficacy and enjoyment out of that. Um, so I'm competing this weekend, actually. I'm running an ultra marathon, which will be 50Ks. So that's sort of me full circle. I'm down my lightest. So I was down 16 kilos. Um, I've pushed some more carbs and sold in this week. So I'm floating a bit heavier. I'm floating around like the 82, 83 mark. Um, and yeah, that's really the story. It's been, been a really cool experience. It's been a lot of fun. What a change. But still weight training. Yeah. yeah. So the whole time I've lifted weights three times a week. Like, so I did four times a week until January. Mm -hmm. And then when I signed up for the ultra, I dropped my frequency down to the third session a week just so I could afford that extra bit of time to sort of drive that aerobic response. Hmm. Yeah. How have you found, so when you're doing powerlifting training, there's probably particular things that's going through your head, a particular mindset that you go in with. How is that different when you enter a long run, like when you're training for the 50? Yeah, I think they're really, it's funny because running has definitely made me train harder in the gym. Mm -hmm. um, I think power, powerlifters love talking about how hard powerlifting training is, but it's probably one of the easiest sports in the world. Like, the hard thing about powerlifting is engaging in it long enough to actually become good. Mm -hmm. um, and really like that's the, like you look at any like exceptional powerlifter, they spend 10, 15 years plus like just 
persisting and improving marginally over that time. Like I think that's a difficult thing. Whereas with like with running and with like aerobic training generally, there are sessions which just like the level of pain you experience is a lot higher, and you also experience that level of pain for a lot longer too. Um, like even a really hard set of like eight squats, which would be disgusting, is generally over in a minute or so. Um, and then you know you get to lie down for five minutes, have some more caffeine, and do it again. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned powerlifting being one of the easiest ones. I would have said perhaps ping pong is easier until Dean showed me some some um, footage of extreme ping pong. <laughs> Holy shit! Table tennis. Table tennis. What's yeah. the difference? Um, I'm not entirely sure, but I think ping pong might be like. I think like people will colloquially use ping pong. Okay, all right. But it's not actually. We'll go with show. table tennis. I'm so sorry to all the serious table tennisers out there listening. It's like half your listenership, isn't it? It's an, at it's, least fifty percent. That's a yeah. at least. apology. Um. Yeah, but what about lawn bowls? I dare say that would be easier. Mm. Yeah, mm. physically. Mm. Yeah. Maybe not on the. Oh, it actually, she's very fun. Hmm. I personally think that um, going through really hard training makes my life in general feel easier. Uh, have you found that you approach different difficulties and struggles in your life differently after experiencing the pain of long distance running? Um, yes and no. Because I think like, like I've always, like oh, I grew up playing sport and like training's always been a thing I've done. So there's probably like, there's always been a sense of hard training has been like a thing I do. And I think it's like, I've been doing that for so long. It's probably enough of a part of my identity that it's hard to actually pull those bits apart and figure out what's like the driving factor. I definitely think training is a really good microcosm for like developing self-efficacy and going, and even just tactically, like if you have something hard to do, how can you break it up into small bits? How can you, think about, Hey, I can get there and I can do it. Um, it's like, I think, and I'm sure you guys would agree. Like a lot of people you train or work with who are really successful external to their training also tend to be quite good at learning how training works and applying that and vice versa. People who are really good at training and really good at adhering to a process and applying themselves are often successful in other unrelated domains, um, simply because those skills have so much in common. Yeah, of like commitment and dedication and... Yeah. Oh, even yeah. just being able to waver some pain for a moment to realise that it's only short and acute and yeah. long-term, the positive is greater than the negative. And Not choosing short-term satisfaction. Even simple things like team coherence and sports, like team sports and, you know, understanding that you, it's good to lean on people sometimes, but sometimes you have to be an individual. Like exercise in general or fitness in general, I think has a lot of carryover into life. Yeah, Definitely. Some of us are lucky enough, I think, that we, uh, for lack of a better term, fell into it as children and maintained it. And then there's a lot of other people, I think, that it, they struggle to get into it because it's really difficult to put yourself in those tough situations once, when it's not comfortable. Whereas, like you said, similar for me, I've, well, I've kind of been uncomfortable my whole life <laughs> in regard to sport, you know? I was not encouraged into sport as a child, nor was I discouraged from it, though. But it just wasn't something that my parents really pushed. Um, and I got into it as a, a late teen and I did it because, uh, well, I think I did it for vanity actually, to be fair at first, but a really awesome byproduct was I was really angry 
Um, I had like a lot of emotional buildup and I just found that exercise helped me let go of all of that. Mm. And I left the gym feeling like clear headed and I could make better decisions. And I don't, I don't continue training anymore. Like at the ripe old age of 31, nearly 32 for the same reasons, but I still get the same benefits. Like I'm, you know, still things piss me off occasionally and the gym helps me let go of that. Yes, you Dean. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think like there's so many benefits to it that seem unrelated, but they're just such awesome byproducts. Yeah, as a, as a non-reflective individual that I am, mm-hmm. I don't That's think true. I don't think I've realised how much of an advantage I gained out of my childhood and the path that I took with sport. Now as an adult, however, the more I look at people that try and get into it at a later age, and also like listening to people that are far more reflective than me. I'm like, yeah, that was a one privileged upbringing that I had. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Privileged white male. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> um, yeah. But, mate, you mentioned before that you cut your weight training down to three times per week. So I thought it would be interesting to maybe unpick what you've personally found and then maybe we can talk about, you know, what we see in the research or even in, in other clients as to, like, how you've been able to manage the, the exercise load from what seemingly is two very, very different modalities of exercise, one being strength training, one being endurance training. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think like the way, like something I think we don't talk enough about is that the dosage of like anything really from like a training or nutritional perspective, you need to maintain an adaptation is like so different to the dosage you need to like improve things. Um, and particularly in the case of powerlifting, right. As an example, you're a relatively meaningful amount of your improvements, especially as you become increasingly advanced, are as like, as a natural athlete, like technical and force output. So they're like neurally driven. So really for me, and especially because I'm, I knew I wasn't going to compete in that window of running the question I had to ask was how do I hang on to as much muscle mass as possible and still stay in touch with a degree with a small amount of technical practice. So basically like I can reduce my weight training volumes. That's cool. Um, and just have like hard sets, so to speak. So have like that requisite, like third to half the amount of volume I normally do, but do it with intent and do it well. Um, because like as a side note slash rant, I think, the tendency to like popularize volume progression is something which is really cool at the moment. But what it means is people sort of use it as like, they just sort of do a met effort. Like, especially when you're talking about RPA seven in that first week of their cycle, it's not really a seven. It's really like a four. And the tendency then just becomes just to add like add sets, add sets, add sets. But it's actually been a really useful exercise for me to be going, okay, I'm only doing six sets of bench press or four or five sets of bench press a week, but I'm executing them with like real intent and executing them with relatively close proximity to failure with the intent of getting as much out of that as possible. Um, and I think particularly when you talk about like running as your, like the thing you're pairing with lifting, one of the drawbacks of doing like a large volume of long distance running is the eccentric loading particularly on your hamstrings is quite high. Like you were taking a lot of steps um, and you're facilitating like a fair amount of muscle damage and that is going to fatigue you. 
So even though it's like quite submaximal. So the question becomes, how do you get the most out of as little as possible? Which is something you posted about the other day on Instagram, I saw it in. Yeah, last night. Getting the max out of the min. Max out of the min. Definitely. It's a really interesting thing because um, you're right. Like obviously volume has been this, uh, you know, theory of more volume equals more growth in the hypertrophy space. And yet a lot of people forget to asterisk that comment with the so long as effort is, is there also. So like if you have a client that is otherwise very, very poor at getting to a, like a legitimate proximity to failure, then more volume will be better than less volume. But the moment you drive effort in, less volume is necessary. We've weirdly forgotten that there's this inverse relationship with intensity and volume. It's like people have forgotten about that and all of a sudden it's now more volume, more intensity. But really the intensity isn't that great because more volume dictates that they have to be less intensity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you, you kind of forced upon you in, in uh, what you're currently doing. Um, and yeah, I, and I remember reading ages ago, I couldn't quote the numbers on it, but the, the amount of actual micro trauma in a runner, like from the feet up, is exponentially greater than that of a weight trainer. Yeah. It's like, and it's been, it's like, I think that's a really interesting one in that it's just not a thing that people think about. Yeah. Um, especially the people who are real like, big advocates of like muscle damage drives hypertrophy. Like, man, those marathon runners are jacked to their legs. Like, <laughs> or they'd have club feet. Yeah. Could you imagine? Like the, the <laughs> it's got fucking paddles. Yeah. <laughs> so once this run is over, this coming weekend, right? Yeah. And so also, you're raising money for Beyond Beyond Blue through this run, right? Yeah, yeah, we are. If anyone wants to donate, Flex Success has donated. Flex Success have. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Our pleasure. What is your Instagram handle if anyone wanted to jump on and donate? Yeah, so my Instagram handle is tom.clark.fitness. I've got the link in my bio. I will attach it actually. We'll to drop it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Cheers, there we go. Thanks. We'll yeah. on Monday, so it'll be just after your run. But mm. yeah. For those that have an ABN, it is a tax deductible donation. True. If that's an incentive. So once this run is over, what's the plan for your training? Um, yeah, so plan is I've entered, I've entered for powerlifting nationals, which will be 18 weeks later, um, which I'll compete at as an 85. The plan is so I've got like a very gradual introduction to the powerlifting movements in that I've got like two or three sets a week of very, very easy powerlifting. And the rest of my training is biased towards like work where I can acquire as much mechanical tension as possible. Um, So very much because I'm weighing in so light at the moment, like I'm weighing in at like 81, 82, you pull myself in that slight surplus, let myself gain three or four kilos in the lead up to the competition. Ideally regain any amount of like regain some of the muscle, which has been lost because I've lost so much weight. It's inevitable that sun's gone. Um, so yeah, push that along and then keep myself doing like chipping away with the minimum dose of cardiovascular work. I need to improve slightly. So one of the things I really played around with my running programming in the lead up to this ultra um, was how much aerobic work do I need to do as a minimum to notice week on week improvements? And then what is the maximal amount of aerobic work I can sustain and in which modalities? Mm-hmm. So I think something we, something we don't think about enough with sport 
is, or any sport really, is what are the actual qualities we need to succeed in this? And I think that's really the, that's where a lot of like power, like generic powerlifting programs fall down is that at different stages, different individuals need different things to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, with powerlifting, like I said before, there's like that sort of neural and like skill element of it. And then there's also the question of how much muscle mass do you have? Like how, what's your force producing architecture like? Mm-hmm. Um, and for running, like to draw like an analogy for running a really large part of what limits you is aerobic but another large part of what limits you is can the muscles actually handle that level of loading for that long so like when i started when i first came back to running i was running like three to five k and i was cramping like horrendously and i was sore for three or four days um it was actually quite funny it was a bit sad When I was doing that, I sat down and went, okay, like what are the things which are limiting me right now? There's obviously like this tissue tolerance, which is limiting me. So what I need to do is work below that threshold of like, where do my joints get beat up and split up the workload so I can allow that to get a little bit better. And then because like running an ultra marathon is such an aerobic endeavor, what other modalities of training can I engage with, which will give me an aerobic benefit without having the same loading? Mm-hmm. So like the thing I've, I've been utilizing a lot of cycling as an example. Sure. Like it's not as specific. It's not going to be as good as like doing more running. But what I found was once my weekly kilometers ticked over like 35 and got closer to 40, I started getting niggly like, uh, Achilles tendonitis, my knees got a bit cranky, things didn't start going as well. So it was about finding what's that dosage and then what are some other domains I can improve that training output for. Uh, it's, it's really similar with like a, what you see with a lot of powerlifters at the moment. It's trendy in like the off season to do, to do some low bar squatting as an example and then really become friends with like the pendulum squat or a hack squat or something where you can just mechanical load and just do the work to like impart that stimulus and get better in that domain. Mm. Yeah. You chose the bike because it was lower impact on your joints, right? But still had cardiovascular benefits. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also, I've, I live in Brisbane now and Brisbane's also just a super bike friendly city to get around in. Um, such terrible public transport it needs to be. <laughs> Is that so? <laughs> yeah. Man, it's not even the fact, but just driving a car around Brisbane. Like it's, it takes me nine minutes to cycle to uni, but 20 minutes to drive to uni, park a kilometre away and walk. Um, (laughs) What the hell? Yeah. So that's like been a nice way to just integrate that training into like my behaviours and routine as well. So that's been quite easy. I think that's that's because though I think you kind of almost lives like on a, um, like a peninsula almost. Yeah. Like essentially. So like, if they've got bridges that walk over there, but to drive to it, you have to do the big loop. Right, yeah. right, right. For listeners that don't um, know you, Tom, or don't follow you, can you share why you moved to Brisbane? Yeah, so I moved to Brisbane at the beginning of the year to study med at um, University of Queensland. Um, yeah, which has been really cool. It's been really interesting. Um, yeah, so What's that's... the yeah. time frame on that degree for you this time? So that's going to be... I, Four years total. Um, I'm going to be basically a pensioner by the time I'm done. Um, but no, yeah, so four years total. So, like, 
like we'll call it three and a half left. Is that four years before you then decide to go down some form of specialization route as well and spend longer there? Yeah, well, from four years until I just become a full-time flex coach, the way I see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, doc- we can call him Dr. Tom instead of Mr. Tom. Yeah, why don't we just fast track that and start calling you Dr. Tom? Yeah, look, I'm happy too if you want that. If you want that I'd be really uncomfortable with that. <laughs> Big side issue, and I want to come back to, you were talking about some training stuff before, but at um, Maya, I used to work inside Maya, the department store. When you were a teenager or something? Yeah, I was like 18, so I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people that would put doctor on their Maya one card because they never checked anything. You could put whatever you wanted on there. So like a couple of the people that we knew were regular like customers, they would come in and be like, yeah, Dr. John Smith. You're like doctor. And they're like, yeah, man. (laughs) 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 They would just roll with it. That's so great. Um, What I found interesting before my, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the parallel between the powerlifting setup in regards to periodizing what you need versus the running is quite an interesting one in that, you know, like not a lot of people talk about general preparedness phases this is all this sort of stuff. But like we think about those three vectors that you mentioned to become a really good powerlifter. It's first one is how much muscle do you have? Second is skill and then neural, right? Those are the three things you typically have up your sleeve. And then for running, it was aerobic like function or aerobic base. And then there's also the skill of running. And, and what you would normally do in the past, you spend a lot of time building up the muscle because it's the slowest. And then you would go into a specificity phase and do more skill work, especially more repetition, if you're especially if you're natty, repetition and you get better at becoming a powerlifter as a skill at the end. And then in running, you've essentially done the exact same thing. You built an aerobic base, knowing that you couldn't tolerate so much of the specific running, but then eventually that specific running, obviously cadence and repetition of that has to go up too. So this is just like a really nice framework for people to think about. I think when they're, trying to either do two things at once, which is what you're doing, or if they want to try and get better at a new skill or a new sport or whatever it may be, how do we start at the base and then where do we go from there? I think like a really good take home is think about it. Like Tom has clearly thought about it. I find a lot of people, especially people who come from a fighting background, their strategy is just go as hard as you can until you break and then even then continue to go hard. Um, But Tom, you've obviously thought about this in a bit more detail uh and you're far better off for it well i think one of the things i was actually uniquely lucky with is like i've like i've got a really extensive background with like powerlifting and strength sports and like strength and conditioning and stuff but i haven't previously been exposed to a lot of programming in that running space and it was a thing i made a deliberate effort to learn a lot about but it also allowed me to plan out my training and manage it in a domain, which was like completely free of bias. Mm. Um, I had had a mate send me a, like a weights program. He made up for himself a couple of weeks back where what he'd done is he basically went straight to the literature and went, what are the recommendations? How does this work? And then he wrote a program from that having never been to a gym in his life. Right. Really interesting because he produced this product, which was like, there wasn't anything technically wrong, but it really defied a lot of like traditional conventions. Okay. Give me some examples. Like he had, he had one day, which he was repeating like four or five times a week, but had like basically one to two sets per exercise and sort of worked on this proviso of I can deliver like maximal stimulus in that single set. 
so I can train quite hard. But then because I'm only doing a set, I can recover quite easily. Okay. It was really interesting, like as a thought process. And I think he'd, because he had to go back and go, okay, what are the principles driving this? How do I apply it? Mm-hmm. And I think there are probably a few too many people who are, who love their like individual school of thought. And when they get really, really deep into that school of thought, they stop like thinking critically about all the applications and begin to be wrong at least some of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like really like to draw on the powerlifting examples. Um, arbitrary example would be like looking at the people who are really, really deep diving into like ITS right now, um, as opposed to the people who are doing like linear progression forever in the past. Uh, like the, like there's the, the Wilkes cycle, which a lot of like natural Australian powerlifters will be familiar with where like individuals start doing sets of like 10 and then they do sets of eight, five they end up hitting a pb set of five like four-ish weeks out and then a pb double like two weeks out and i think when you when you have a framework like that like the world cycle it's a really nice like framework to begin with and i think it's useful to learn with that but then when you begin to ask the question like why does this have to be exactly this way and what's the principle driving it all of a sudden you put yourself in a position where you can troubleshoot and potentially allow it to solve more problems for more people mm. um, or even differentiate. Is this going to be the thing which is the most effective right now? Mm. Um, I, was just, I think it's because people like, like when they want something, they go looking for the answer, not for pathway to get to or looking to confirm their bias. Their existence. Yeah. But like, so like I, like if I wanted to learn, if I was like, Oh, I want to, be a runner. I want to run a half a marathon tomorrow. The first thing most people are going to put into Google is running program. So then they get just given a generic program that somebody's already created and they have no idea why it exists because they haven't actually thought about it. Like you said, like, what do I actually, like, you know, what are the requisite skills or, you know, particular characteristics that I require to do well? Yeah. And it's, it's funny you say that, right? Because I almost view, like, I almost be asking that question as the easier one. Like particularly with running as an example, right? Like there are a lot of really fancy programs I've looked at for running. Um, but basically like aerobic training is like super convenient because you just get this nice like dose response. And when you have non-responders, almost all the literature suggests you just have to give them more work and they become responders. Mm. Um, it's super convenient and sure. Like there's a practical limit on how much more work you can do forever. But with the running, like all the question became was how do I drive an aerobic response? And because that's such a simple question and it's potentially so accessible, it gives me more bandwidth to do things in many different ways and still be fine. Um, And I suspect that's a thing which is also true with weight training, but we're less inclined to agree with because like you watch like bodybuilding is a really good example. Look at the diversity of training approaches in the bodybuilding world. There's all these people doing all these like really different things and they're all getting at least some people really jacked. Mm. Um, Like we probably like though, like as much as we love thinking about the minutia, it probably doesn't matter quite as much as we would like um, at least in that aspect. The outcome can be, if we're talking about bodybuilding specifically, 
the short-term outcome of getting jacked, there's plenty of ways to skin a cat there. But then we only have to look at Ronnie Coleman to see the long-term consequences can be quite different. Yeah. A bad surgery. <laughs> oh my God. How many surgeries has the man had now? Too many. A lot is probably the official number. Enough to make him live 24-7 on Octi. <laughs> yeah. yeah like but even like like Ronnie Coleman man like at his peak his quad circumference like his slice circumference was larger than his hips yeah oh, that's so like, crazy. Like, like, when you just when you just think about like what does that do to your locomotion like what does that do to everything man like there's probably no way to be that size and not ruin everything oh he wouldn't even have to strategically figure out how to wipe his own ass Man, he'd play bottom game in the bedroom for sure. <laughs> Doubt the guy could hold himself up aerobically. <laughs> I don't know. He did do a lot of reps too, though. Who knows? <laughs> but um, just screaming, yeah, buddy. Um, <laughs> do you think that's his bedroom call out? For yeah, sure. buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know. No, the um, the interesting thing is, I think, like I said before, like a lot of people's results are predicated on effort, right? And there are a whole bunch of different approaches that people take in the bodybuilding space and other fitness spaces. And I think if you are willing just to sort of just go in and go hard, you'll probably get to like 80 to 90% of what is achievable naturally or even not naturally just by putting in a lot of effort. But it's the, the, like the people that want to sit in the upper echelon of each of those sort of different categories that really then need to say like, what can be better? You know, like when I get a person who's come to me and I know that they just train balls out real hard, I'm kind of like this, like, you know, rubbing my hands together going, okay, like now let's see what happens when we really refine this approach. Like how much more can we get out of them, even though they're already advanced, but I don't think advanced. To get them to train smart, not just hard. Yeah. I don't think if you're already at an advanced stage from a developmental perspective, whether it be cardio spiritually or even like anaerobically or strength wise, you won't get the extra bit until you then do become more refined. Yeah, and I think I think part of that part of that process of refining it probably also involves like accepting some contours or like like some sort of at least some degree of phase like potentiation in your programming and training. Um, like I I am very much of the opinion that the people who are pushing a single approach all the time, like if you're if you're in that high volume camp and you're just doing high volumes constantly and you're just escalating set volume across your cycle and you do that forever, that is a way that will probably likely cap your long-term progress. But alternatively, if you're someone who's done like that high volume work for two or three years and then you spend a period of time going, okay, I'm going to work with comparatively lower volumes, I'm going to drive my intensity a bit higher, you'll probably find exploring ends of that continuum actually facilitates you eating out the like the one or two percent for a longer period of time um and that's that's definitely my powerlifter bias showing because there's a lot of individuals like at the moment like there are oh there's a few like separate trends going on but like people are really like auto regulations increasingly a growing thing and i think it's something which is going to stay but a lot of people take advantage of auto-regulation to work harder than they previously have because it's sort of taken over this trend of sub-maximal load prescription. And what happens is because you've spent two or three years doing sub-maximal work, like nailing your technique, accruing a decent amount of volume, when all of a sudden you have a framework which lets you work a little bit harder and work a little bit harder by like what your perception of difficulty is, you experience this sudden surge in the amount of PBs you're hitting. Oh. 
especially at that top end of strength. So you might find you're hitting PB triples every week for ages. And I found when I went up, when I went up in body weight, there was a period of six or so months of that bulk where I didn't hit many PBs at all. And that was because like my training was almost entirely submaximal. And then when everything shut down with COVID, I had a gym in my garage. All of a sudden I was getting nine hours of sleep every night. I was given the option to auto-regulate a bunch of sets. And there was a period of like 12 weeks where I genuinely would have PB'd every week, every second week in some kind of rep for my main list. Mm -hmm. And that's not because like having some level of auto-regulation is magical, but it's because it facilitated me realizing those gains, which I've worked for in the past. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the whole, um, that's just like a perfect representation of, uh, the novelty required in, and the said principle, which is like, you know, a specific adaptation to an imposed demand. So mm-hmm. the moment that you can go from consistent progression or consistency in a particular modality to then create a novel stimulus, you'll get an additional adaptation that's yeah. specific to that, that demand. So, uh, that's a really, really good valid point. I imagine this would also still apply even to the running camp too, you know? you can run K's on K's on K's. And the point is, if you want to run those K's faster, there's got to be a point where you anaerobically get a little bit better. So your lactate threshold improves. Yeah. And that's why like one of the really, one of the really predominant schools of thought with long distance running is 80, 20 uh, prescription of your volume. And it's the idea that 20% of your running volume is like super maximal race pace. Uh And that 80% sits below it. And it's just really easy work. Um, and that framework allows you to concurrently accumulate heaps of kilometers, but also get really good sort of peak exposure. And it's like you said, it's that idea of at some stage, if you want to run faster, you have to run faster. Um, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, you bolt just like jogs constantly. <laughs> but the, and I think that was the thing I was really lucky with in preparing for the ultra there's basically no demand on my capacity to run quickly. Mm. So all of a sudden it becomes really easy for me to use more than 80% of my training. It's just being really easy running kilometers. Um, and that's particularly nice in a counterintuitive way. That's nice balancing something like powerlifting because those easy K's sure. Like there's a, there's an element of mental toughness in like just being able to run for two hours but they're actually comparatively easy, low stress workouts. Physically or emotionally? Both. I think like if you're, and like, again, this comes from like my background playing footy and stuff. I like in rugby preseason and Dean, you'd probably agree with me from soccer or football rather, whatever your persuasion is. But like, I think, like from our rugby background, cardio is always the, you do this until you vomit. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, like it's the hardest thing ever. And understanding and utilizing like heart rate zone training that I can just run, like I ran last Monday, I ran a marathon and my average heart rate was 145. Like, the same as what you were walking from. Marginally <laughs> yeah, high was walking a year ago. Um, isn't that embarrassing that's hilarious that's so funny that's a good one um now there's a testimonial um (laughs) you know like i think like when you're operating in that kind of zone it's not actually particularly hard training um 
like the, the boredom of I'm doing this for three, four hours is probably more of an issue than like having to really suck yourself up for it. Mm. Um, the way that like before, like preseason training, you might be sitting in the car before the session going like, oh, yeah. I don't know how I'm going to run these sprints. Just um, drawing some parallels in my mind here to that really easy, but consistent running, you know, over 80% you mentioned. That's like trying to make progress in almost anything else. If somebody's trying to lose body fat and maintain a lower body weight, most of their work they have to do is mundane and consistent and boring. And they just need to persist with it for long periods of time, just like the easy work that you do when you run. And I think that's when people get kind of derailed because it is boring, because it's not exciting, because it's repetitive. But those that's where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like, oh, it's like, um, I'm pretty sure it's Atomic Habits. That's um, the statement that the difference between people who are like exceptional and Olympians is they can tolerate boredom. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was like the last chapter yeah. of Atomic Habits. Yeah. Um, and that's massive. And like, I think, and again, like as someone who's trained his whole life, I feel really lucky because I always train. I'm always going to have some level of training. So all getting better at any one domain requires of me is for me to turn the knob on. What's the thing I'm training or like spending that time doing? Mm-hmm. Like it's such an inbuilt behavior. You just change it. Um, and I think, yeah, it's like, even if it's boring, for example, like i like, it's just a thing you do. Like you're almost like a robot. And I think it's really that boredom is also confounded with like it being difficult to implement that kind of behavioral change for a lot of people too. Um, particularly as they do it for longer periods of time. Yeah. I think like what you just said there is that like, essentially you already have the dials available to you from your childhood. You're just, you're just dialing one up and dialing one down. Whereas maybe people that are looking to change something that has otherwise been a lifetime problem, like food control and behavior control and all that kind of stuff is they're actually having to go through a period initially of uh, like installing the dial. Mm. Then they can learn to dial it up and dial it down. But it's that first like foundational build. that's very difficult for people to get. And I think like Dean, before you said you, you're not someone who's like particularly reflective on, on like on yourself. I think that's where like fostering individuals having improved like ability to reflect is really useful because like I like without getting into the free world debate, which is one I'm sure we'll have another time. Like I sort of, I view myself and my training and like to an extent my clients and their training as how do you put this, like how can you sort of on a meta analytical thought level, put this individual in an environment where engaging in the behaviors they need is as easy as possible. Uh-huh. And I think not enough people actually do that for like long-term behavioral change. So if you said to someone, Hey, like to get healthier, you should probably do this. You should probably eat this way and you should exercise three times a week. Not enough people ask the question of like, what kind of like bigger behavioral changes can I make to make exercising three times a week possible or easy? Like, does that mean you sign up at a gym near work and you go to work an hour early every day? Or like ask that next step of questioning and thought process mm-hmm. makes things like way easier. Like one of the things I found which really helped me lose, lose a lot of weight was I would pack my meals. And then even on the days where I didn't have classes all day, I would spend from seven, eight, like I would get to the gym at, or run at 6am in the morning. And then I would spend 11, 12 hours at uni, like also because 
my study load is ridiculous, but I would spend that 11, 12 hours at uni with all my food completely planned and organized for that time. It was out of the house. So my fridge there, I've environmentally made adhering to my diet super easily. You're reducing temptation. Well, it's actually more convenient for you too. More efficient. Yeah. Way more convenient, way more efficient, but it comes from that thought process about the thought process. Like what are the things which make me adhering to this plan easier and how do I just manipulate my environment so that, you know, the, the proverbial sort of mouse in the maze is forced to make the right decision. One thing I find helpful um, along these lines when it comes to clients wanting to do something, but, and kind of loosely committing to, yeah, I'll eat more vegetables, like, but when, but how, but you know, whatever is implementation intentions. So you would ask them to fill in the blanks. Uh, let's, let's call it, um, let's say somebody has a big issue with actually training consistently. It would be, please complete this sentence on these days of the week, blank. I will exercise and the number of working sets I will do is blank. I will exercise at this time at this location. Mm -hmm. And so they're highlighting what they'll do, when they'll do it, where they'll do it. And it's not left and it's up to them to, to go ahead and actually repeat those behaviors, <laughs> but at least then the specifics are outlined. It's not this mm -hmm. sort of up in the air, airy fairy idea of, yeah, I'll exercise more. Like what does more mean? What does exercise mean? Yeah, or even I'll do four sessions in this week. I'm like, this week has a lot of hours. Like, when do they? When do those sessions exist? Yeah. So implementation mm -hmm. intentions is something that can really help people nut out the details. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, shall we move on to something we're sharing? Let's do it. Okay, Tom, do you have something worth sharing with our audience that you think might add value uh, to all the ping pong players that are listening? <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, I thought a lot about this one um, and one of the things I found myself and like in line with what we were saying before about the idea of demand, like thinking about the demand of things and thinking rationally, honestly, referring to a textbook is I think my thing with sharing. Like I, it's really easy to get bogged down in like the minutiae and like, like what is the latest research on this? But one of the things my study recently has made me realize is having just a really solid fundamental understanding of anatomy and physiology very much makes accessing everything else easier. And it also allows you having good fundamentals also allows you to figure out when someone's selling you something, which doesn't quite sit properly. Like if you look at almost every person spruiking nutrition poorly on Instagram, if you sit down and go, okay, well, how does the physiology, how does the anatomy work? You can pick apart their claims really easily. Mm. You don't need to read a hundred science papers straight away. You just need to refer to a textbook and go like fundamentally, how does this thing work? Mm. And the textbook suggestion is so that people can build a foundational understanding. Mm. Yeah. So you need like, you need a like sort of fundamental understanding or you need like a schema of how does this thing work? to then be able to work with it mm. um, as opposed to just knowing like a series of sort of disparate individual facts. You want it to sort of be this cohesive body of like these are how it all relates and connects. Mm -hmm. I can really relate to that because um, I have a, a lot of clients that are like, I heard that keto is then like, oh, all right. And to me, it's so obvious why so many claims are just absolutely invalid, but I know nothing about, cars, automobiles. Mm. 
And I feel like every time I go to the mechanic, actually we have a good mechanic now, but outside of this guy, hi Josh, um, I feel like I am vulnerable to being ripped off because I do not have a foundational understanding of how cars work. But if I just knew the bare minimums, not individual little claims, but sort of like a broad, broader idea of how the system works, then I would be far less vulnerable to being ripped off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, mm. Yeah. And I think like it, you, you do need to exercise a small degree of caution with that road in that, you can get trapped in this sort of like empiricism versus rationalism discussion where like, if you have enough knowledge about a thing, you can justify something which is wrong, actually mattering. Um, like really, really good example would be if you were to talk about like fructose intake, for example, there's like potentially like fructose uptake isn't actually dependent on insulin. Um, and you can sort of, if you know like this physiology, you could then draw like a slightly long bow and be like, Hey man, like watch out for fructose. It's going to be like uniquely metabolically damaging, etc." Um, and that's when you need to refer to the literature. So I think there is like, like, again, it's, it's not just totally depend on the textbook, but it's like have that foundational knowledge and then apply it. Mm. Yeah. Cause you don't want to know enough to what's the saying. Some people know enough to think they're right, but not enough to know they're wrong. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 It's very much the dining career thing there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Good. Good. Something we're showing. Do you have a favorite textbook? I'm not that sad. <laughs> Luckily. <laughs> um, yeah. So I do not have a favorite textbook. Sorry guys. I've let you down. <laughs> I thought maybe there's one that you reserve like uh, space Arnold, under your pillow for. Arnold Encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, not the best textbook. Um, all right. And the next question we have for Tom, if you, you don't have any children, but if you did, would you rather have a boy or a girl and why? Um, man, there's a doozy. Um, I, so like I'm going to frame this very cautiously. <laughs> in that I don't, I definitely don't have like an inherent preference, but is it that? But I think I would probably do a better job parenting a boy. Okay. Um, just because, like, I'm a dude. And you think that you can relate to a man, a, a boy, more easily because you've been through the things. Yeah, well, like I, you know, like I wasn't a girl for that long. I spent more time as a boy. Um, <laughs> But no, like, I think, yeah, like, just there's something about that lived experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm in the family of three boys, too, so I have zero experience. Your poor mum. In hindsight, she now says it was the greatest thing ever. Why? Because she, these, are, these are my mother's words. Uh -huh. After she's, she worked in before enough school care, so she's had a lot of exposure to children. Okay. And she said, I always wanted a girl, but having had my three boys, I'm so glad that I didn't because girls are just such bitches. <laughs> Okay, look, these are Karen's words. Not <laughs> I'm not going to go down with flames for this one. So when I was making my coffee um, before we, we pressed record on this podcast, I was thinking, what would I choose? Because this is the question that we thought of asking you. And I was like, I think that I would choose a boy just because a woman has so many more barriers to fight through than a man. Mm. Like, But then wouldn't it be also fun to have like 
a girl that you could empower to be one of the, the people that change society? Sure, but she's still very likely to be raped in her life, very mm. likely to not have promotions or to give, give up a lot of her career and superannuation because she has to bear children. Mm. And there's still, you know, so many things that a woman has to deal with that a man doesn't. Mm. So she think- doesn't get to go to the bathroom standing up. That's the clincher for her. That's why she can get a she-week. That's true. true. Hey. I think that I would have a lot more fun with a boy, but I think I would live a very stereo. I would basically just repeat my life with as a boy. Like it'd be very sports orientated, um, competitive. Why not? Wouldn't you have a sport orientated female? Potentially would, mm. but I think I would also be quite typical or quite stereotypical with the like wanting a, to like be protective and um, I would let them do whatever they want, but I think I'd be more caring of a daughter. I would be more robust with a boy. Okay. One thing that we definitely don't want children, but if we had a girl, one thing that I would be sure to do would be to, um, when she's, you know, gone through puberty, encourage her to be sexually active because Mm. I think a lot of parents are like, yeah, my son's getting laid and no, my daughter's going (laughs) to be a virgin until she's married. And I think those are such sexist ideas of like, what's embraced and then what should be oppressed. Mm. And I'm like, why? Women have sexual needs as well. Why? No, she cannot have a boyfriend until she's 18. But yes, my 12-year-old son can bang. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know so- if I've heard anyone say my <laughs> 12-year-old son can bang. <laughs> I quote. <laughs> not in line with anything from my childhood or teenage years. <laughs> I certainly was never told at all. You go get him, son. Go bang, son. <laughs> That's no. <grade> seven. <laughs> Perhaps exaggerating. But, but like, would you not both agree that um, it would be more embraced for a son to have his girlfriend sleep over and parents would be like, yeah, you guys can share a bed, son, make sure you don't get her pregnant. But a female would be like, no, your boyfriend is not sleeping over, you know, you're not old enough or whatever. Yeah. I'm I'm a little bit on the spectrum, so I'm going to paraphrase what I say next about that. Okay. Uh, But especially like as, as a bloke, I find like like a lot of like gender specific issues like that. I often find myself wondering why we can't just like treat people like people. Yeah, equally. Um, like like as someone who has like a younger brother and a younger sister, like like they're both just people. <laughs> like yeah, it's it's a, it's really foreign to me, and like I'm really privileged like in that. Like that's a product of like my upbringing and my experiences with the world, but like. Like, can't we just treat everyone else like we're the same? Like, that is a great idea, Tom. Mate, it would be I, lovely. Incredibly, like, incredibly intuitive. Um, yeah. <laughs> I grew up uh, with parents that weren't born in Australia and were raised with very traditional ideals of gender norms from their background. So, Lebanese and Venezuelan. My dad is Lebanese, my mum is Venezuelan. Um, you know, my brother was always tasked with mowing the lawn, not that he ever did it. And I was always tasked with doing the dishes and and making dinner Mm. and very, very typical. And so it's probably no surprise that whenever my brother had a girlfriend, whoever it was, she was allowed to sleep over. I was never allowed not only to go to a boy's house. If he came to my house, we were not allowed in my bedroom, even with the door open, even if we just wanted to watch a movie because I had a TV in my room. Um, you know, he had to be in the lounge room with my parents and like, we were just treated so differently. Mm. Um, and it was not because I was shown to be sexually promiscuous and they couldn't trust me. Like I wasn't, um, it was just because I was a female Yeah. and I just, the same as if I was to have a girl, 
she can bang. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm down with that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would. I reckon like parents would claim the whole. Oh, it's because I don't trust the boy part. But I just think that's a bit of a cop out. Oh well, I'm sure they knew my brother was having sex in his room. No, no, no. I mean, like, so like, if you have a daughter and you. She invites the boyfriend over. Uh-huh. And the reason why they don't allow you to be in the room is because they don't trust the boy, not you. Right. But in the son's situation, they're like, I trust my son because I've raised him right uh-huh. to look after the girl. I would yeah. imagine that would be the argument. I don't know if it's a, fa- a, a, it's a fair argument in that it's probably safer, but I don't think it should be an argument because I think we should just treat people like people. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's, re- it's very much, it's like people looking for a reason to account for their biases. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think also teenage boys do not present as well as a lot of teenage girls do. Like just from like a meeting the in-laws, like am I a polite human being who can string together a coherent sentence? Um, I think guys take a little bit more time to develop that. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, that's true. Well, not for me. Yeah, you're almost there then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, I've never had a problem with in-laws. No, but you've always been an articulate fella. No, no, I think it's the same again. Like I lived a fairly privileged childhood in that I was exposed to a lot of adults. I was exposed to a lot of structure. I was exposed to like, fuck man, in a soccer team that we had a, like the manager of our representative soccer team would say, if you don't have your boots cleaned, you do the following. So Mm -hmm. there was already authoritarian figures where I had to adhere to rules if I wanted to get a particular result, Mm -hmm. you know? So you so knew. I've buffed those boots like a motherfucker. You knew. Tom, now we're going to play Would You Rather. Oh, boy. Pulled a card out of the... We're going to go for two now because you only had one of the other ones. One other question. Oh, okay. Would you rather have permanent bad breath? A. That hallowed... What is it? Halitosis? Halitosis? What a, what a name. Or B. Uh, have your partner have bad breath, but only around you. Oh, oh man. I'm selfish as... I'm coughing bad breath for me. <laughs> so other people have to, to smell it. Yeah, man. Well, my nose will just get used to it and discount the smell. That's fine. Yeah. Look, I don't know. I'll... Look, you work online, so I accept your answer. Tom, yeah. you're a doctor. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. Why halitosis? You know what the problem is? As a person who's come through, like, I always... No, no. What's the question, Dean? Yeah, what halitosis? I'm trying to think what the reference Usually is. Usually a word it has some like Latin origin. Do you know the origin of the oh. word? I do not. I only know the word from Poppins, but I'm now Googling it. <laughs> I get tripped up with it because of the halicus longus. Is that the, is that a, the big yeah. toe? That's the big toe. Yeah, the halicus longus. And uh, it's the tendon that goes to the big toe. Yeah. And every time I hear halitosis, I say, toe in mouth? What does... <laughs> oh, man. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're like, your, your breath smells like a big toe. So it, it, it's derived from the Latin halitus, which means breath. Oh. Yeah. Okay. There's, your, there's your answer. Questions with the Dr. Tom. Yeah, that's what we're going to call this. <laughs> Q&A with Dr. Tom. Oh, boy. I've never felt further from being a doctor. Yeah, nine weeks ago, when I in my first week, I was like, yeah, this is exciting. Um, now I'm in this perpetual state of knowing nothing. It's great. Yeah. No. And what do you got? Let's see. No. <laughs> this one. No. No? No. Oh. Uh, lose all your money and valuables or lose every picture you've ever taken? Money and valuables. Oh, really? I'd go picture. Yeah. Well, like, all the pictures. Yeah. 
But money and valuables are so replaceable. Pictures are not. Is that why you've chosen it, Tom? Yeah, but also because like, like I, like I actually, again, speaking from like a position of privilege, right? Like if I lost all of my money, I would like still find a way to survive. Like in that I have like money. the skills and the desire to work hard and to earn more money. Like that's fine. Um, and I'd like to think that I probably, I'd like to think that I live my life not driven by money or like worried about it as long as I have like enough and I'm super easy to please. So it's fine. Hmm. Um, I think that's a wonderful answer and I don't disagree with you. However, have you not lived the picture moment already? Yeah, but your memory is so fleeting and malleable. I think photos give you a concrete, I don't know, kind of anchor point of, Oh yeah, that's right. And you know, yeah. well, like I'm going to give a really obscure shout out here to Snapchat. Um, because Snapchat, when you save a photo on Snapchat, it then like gives you the, you on the memories a year, two years, three years, four years later. Cool. And I'm often struck by like, like, especially if I go away with mates, for example, I'm like, like, there'll be like a thing I'd forgotten about. And then like one time, one of my best mates, like, like passed out on the couch eating Nutella. And like, <laughs> It's like, it's not, it's not like a meaningful thing. It doesn't really matter, but there's something to be said about having that photo pop up unprompted and go, Oh, that was a really good time. That was really funny. Facebook um, memories does that for me too. I agree. Yeah. But I'm worried that when, um, I know you guys know who Ruben is, but for listeners who don't, Ruben is my dog who also happens to be my son and the love of my life. When he passes away, which I know is soon because he's 15 this year. I'm really worried that Facebook memories are going to remind me of his death like every fucking day of my life. Because you have put a lot of pictures of <laughs> All I do is put, I'm like that grandma. You want to see photos of my grandchild? I don't care if you don't want to see photos of him. I'm going to show you at least 20. Mm. <laughs> so do you still want to stick with your answer then? No, I'm still sticking with it. It's fine. Yeah. yeah, I think maybe once I'm over the grief, it'll be lovely. I think my memories are strong enough that I don't, because I don't very... I, Outside of the, the memory that you've mentioned, like one that you don't expect and didn't know that you had, that it was like sort of pictured away there in the, you know, a physical picture makes you remind. I don't ever, ever reflect on photos. But Dean, you don't have feelings. This is the thing. Mm. Dean, I call him emotionally shallow and I mean it. He just like... <laughs> no, you don't. You call me an asshole. No, I don't. Um, different one. <laughs> That's during fights. <laughs> um, but also, like, like to play devil's advocate to that, Dean, like, you know, you're a... You're a coach in a and run a tremendously successful like company called Flex Success. You know, big deal. You should all sign up if you haven't. Um, <laughs> but like, if you were to lose all of your money and material possessions tomorrow, you would just like work and be able to acquire them again. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. You don't even have that many things. What physical possessions are you worried about losing? Is it just your bodybuilding trophies behind you? Valuable to me. I'm not a possession. Ah, oh my god! Just looking for a way to compliment you. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no. Look, I, look. I'm not, I'm for sure not even attached to my things at all, or money. But I do like having enough money that I don't have to worry about money. But you would only have to just build it up again. Yeah, but there'd just be a moment in time where I'm like, oh, what about the mortgage? Look, just accept that me and Tom do not respect your decision on this one. <laughs> Or you as a person. Look, I'll <laughs> right, Dr. Tom? I'll reflect on this later on and I'll probably come to the same decision. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, That's not true. Most of the time when I do genuinely reflect, I'm like, ah, I done fucked that up. Yeah. Because I shoot from the hip top, you know? <laughs> it's like, valuables and money. And I'm like, hey. Uh, maybe it, prisoners should have rights. <laughs> oh, do you remember this discussion? We, um, no, let's yeah. not go into it. So, Tom, normally we wrap up the podcast with asking the guest, where can people get in touch with you? But obviously, because you're a Flex Success coach, we know people know exactly where they can. So, instead, we would like to know where could people touch you should they want to. What's your home address? No, don't. My home address? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm impartial to being patted on the back, you know? It's affirming. It sort of fills the void I need for, like, a bit of approval. Uh-huh. Um, Not a footy bum tap? Is... Oh, Hawaii. No. Right? <laughs> very different. Oh, I'm sorry. Could you imagine being the guy whose last name becomes famous for sticking a finger up somebody else's bum hole in a, in a football match? <laughs> I like where this is going. Yeah. Um, maybe instead of asking for, for Tom's details, yeah. we can wrap it up with what's going on with Flex. Sounds good. And this is getting released only seven days after we're recording it, so it will still be fresh. We have just... Sweet maths, like four days. Is that four days? Huh. Yeah. Sorry to Ruth who edits these podcasts. Who has to do it with like absolutely no warning. Um, we have just released the pre-sales for Untangling Fat Loss, which is the new Flex Success ebook. Pre-sales meaning uh, you can purchase the book now and a, at a discounted rate. And as soon as it's released, we will send it to you. And what is that discounted rate, Liz? Twenty percent off. And the price? Nineteen ninety-five. <laughs> something nineteen something. I don't know. It's nineteen ninety-five. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Um, it should only be a couple of weeks. That because we're just kind of shining the last little bits, uh-huh. and then yeah, so so check that out. So untangling fat loss was written to answer some of the well, a lot of the common questions that our clients have, like how does fat loss and gain actually work, and trying to build that fundamental understanding like we spoke about. But the actual fundamental principles are pretty easy, and the rest of the book goes about helping people um, apply it practically in a practical manner. Um, and gives all sorts of tips like how to read food labels and what foods should I choose and what foods keep me full and how can I reduce cravings and alcohol and fat loss and, and all sorts of other practical mm. things. Yep. So they can just find that through our quick links on Instagram. Yeah, our bio Insta or our homepage. Yep. Anything else you'd like to add, Tom? No, I've been, I've been lucky enough to have a couple of cheeky sneak peek at a few of the chapters um and give some feedback it's really exciting it looks like it's gonna be really good um and i think like it's a nice extension of what like flex is about right it's about like not coaching the same person forever but it's about educating people and giving them the responsibility and the ability to like take control and make things better for themselves so it's gonna be really cool to see it out and about Thanks, Tom. There's one other thing you forgot to mention there, Tom, and we have to get up to you about this all the time, and that is that, guys, if you like this podcast, can you please like and share, um, take a picture of it, and tag us on Instagram? Yes. You never tell anyone, Tom. It's Bloody Tom. Every fucking... time he forgets. Stop bullying me. <laughs> it's the, the guest's responsibility to say that, by the way. <laughs> Definitely not. Please like and share. All right, Tom, well, thanks for your time. It was a yeah. cat as always. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you.